Hi there, and welcome to the Feeling the Sonic podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Connor. This is episode 32, and the title of this episode is Welcome to the Dark Side. In this episode, I talk to Royal Navy veteran, author, podcaster, blogger, creative writer and thinker, Chris Michaels. We chat about the Royal Navy, the Royal Marines, helicopters, aircraft carriers, what it means to be a veteran, PTSD, mental health, podcasting, Metallica and dodgy knees. More of that to come, but first. There now follows a public announcement. Listening to this podcast may seriously upgrade your life. Here's a quick reminder of what the Feeling Versonic podcast is all about. Feeling Versonic is an indie hub featuring news, views, and interviews with notable creatives on entrepreneurial lifestyle, health, very much including mental health, and original independent music. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify Podcasts, or indeed, wherever you get your podcast fits. Feeling the Sonic, it's a matter of choice. Now, on with the show. It is my very great pleasure to introduce you to Chris Michaels. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? Good, mate. Good, you? Yeah, good. I'm very well, thank you. Um, it's Monday. We might as well get that out of the way. Start of another week. But, um, you know, the way people like you and I view Mondays is very much uh, another week in which we can be creative, right? Definitely, definitely. I think that's for anybody in that mindset that we never really look at as like a, a seven-day period. It's always like kind of one period because we're constantly creating. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but um, I I don't really switch off from the creativity. I mean, I think there's my brain is always buzzing with something, whether it be an idea or a creative idea or or song lyrics. I'm pretty convinced my head is full of song lyrics. But, um, you know, do, do you find that you're constantly thinking about things because um, you are a thinker uh, and, and quite a deep thinker? But I mean, do you, how do you switch off from that? very difficult very difficult to be honest with you it's almost like a form of adhd of like i just can't I've, it's like i have to stop myself physically i have to try and give myself something else to do to like drag myself away because i literally at one point i'd have like say notes on your iphone just like putting little like say a sentence or a heading or something that reminds you of that thought and to me i was starting to fill up so much and i'd go back and revisit it and i find it so hard to actually stop and sit down that's been yeah. the hardest thing. And I've tried to do it recently and just go, okay, right, give myself something else, a different task. But I've got to constantly be doing something, I find. And to be honest, I've tried getting back into reading. And then after a chapter, you kind of think, right, oh, that's great. Okay, what's next? Or what? And I literally, in, in this period, I've had to kind of like grind myself down to, to stopping in a way. To slow yourself down. Yeah, I mean, I know, yeah. I know exactly what you mean. I mean, um, I suppose before we go any further, I mean, of course, I know we've been following each other on Instagram, haven't we? But which um, is where I think a lot of people nowadays, their kind of social circle, if you like, even though, you know, we've sort of become friends that way on um, through via social media. But my impression of you, because I think people do form impressions through what they see on social media, is that you are 100 miles an hour non-stop you know you are always doing something and um you know you are you know by very definition a doer um but on that so i'm going to turn the tables because one of the things that you do is you host a podcast as i've done since since the summer uh and you had me on as a guest on your on your podcast uh the dark side podcast um welcome back to the dark side um, which is on all the usual channels, of course. Um, and the, I'm going to turn the tables here, my friend, because the very question you asked me to introduce myself was, who are you? So I'm going to throw it back at you <laughs> and say, who is Chris Michaels? Well, to answer that, I've always said I'm an enigma, um, which I think perfectly is an example. But really, I would say, yes, I'm an author. Yes, I'm a blogger. Yes, I'm a podcast host. I'm a creator, not only like visual, but words as well. Obviously, like um, I've 
basically going back to the beginning, I would say that I started off very much on the mental health path and I've carried that all the way through. I wouldn't as much use the term advocate because I believe that some people just do it just purely for the, the name itself and to give them a status point. Um, to me, that comes from a place of ego and anything that comes from a place of ego is never good. Um, but essentially, it's just being honest, authentic, real about what you're saying and also that accountability so always stick to what you're saying and i've always kept that thread going along but really i would always clasp myself down off that part of like really firstly i'm always going to be that author secondly it's going to be the podcaster thirdly it's always going to be a combination of like creative um writer um visual like i said um and it's something that i would say yes i did serve in the royal navy um, for three years aircraft engineer mechanic and obviously medically discharged um but i would never and this was recently in the last few months i've kind of looked at myself of um i know technically you are classed as a veteran if you've done more than a day essentially but to me i believe a veteran is someone who's basically classed as a combat veteran i think veterans being very loosely attached to anybody that served in the military and that's no disrespect to anybody personally i don't believe i earned that that title um because yes i was frontline but i didn't do any combat operations. I didn't serve in any of the major conflict, but I'll always stand by, like, obviously, the veteran community as a whole. Um, obviously, I've got a lot of friends, obviously, including yourself, who is a um, former uh, servant. And to me, now, I look as that was part of my journey of being in that area and it's something that I'm still proud today of doing. And to be honest, if I was given a chance, I'd go back tomorrow. Well, Chris, I think you're doing yourself a little bit of a disservice there, to, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, in terms of the classification of what a veteran actually is. I mean, if you think about, you don't necessarily have to have been in, in a combat situation or in a, in a war zone to be classified as a veteran. I mean, a veteran, for all intents and purposes, is you know somebody that has served in the military, and you have. Um, if, you look, if you take into account a lot of people that may have done 22 years <laughs> in the military, uh, but never fired a shot in anger. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are lots of people that have been in there, but they, I would still class them as veterans, um, having, you know, put their signed on the dotted line and, and pledged their allegiance to Queen and country and everything. I would, I would say that's that's a veteran. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I don't, I don't disagree because uh, friends, as soon as I put the, the post out and I had obviously friends saying, but you were prepared to go in, to put yourself in harm's way, and which I was. But the, to me, I've always being that person that I was willing to put myself in harm's way. Um, yeah, obviously, well, there you, you go. Know, I mean, and that's essentially, I do agree with that part. I think it's because I don't mm. want to take away that part that people have gone, like, frontline service. Um, yeah, you know, no, I, I understand. I don't want to be confused yeah. as well. I don't want people to confuse because there's a lot of people that will literally, you know, ask, will kind of, like, live in office. You've probably seen yourself, a lot of people who, and that's no disrespect for anybody, but, you know, people who basically were behind the wire for all the time in, you know, in areas such as Iraq or predominantly Afghan, and they yeah. were given service medals. And I just look and think, well, should there not be a, de a different classification of someone who's a combat veteran compared to someone who did their military service? It's in-country, yes, but they were not in harm's way, essentially. Yeah, well, I, I think, um, well, I've got an example of that, actually. I mean, I'm going back a little bit before, but when I served, um, and I, I served, you know, with the Royal Marines, yeah. as you know. Um, um, but if I take into into account the seven weeks that I sent at, spent at sea yeah. en route to the Falkland Islands, down to the South Atlantic, yeah. and obviously we were on, um, all the naval ships were deployed, as well as um, like the Canberra, you know, who yeah. could forget that, this massive... You know the great white whale, as they called it, this ocean-going liner that was that was commissioned into service. You know for the Royal Navy. Um, so my South Atlantic medal um, has a um, a rose on it on the ribbon to indicate that I was land forces. Yeah. But all the Royal Navy guys, I mean, even though they never went ashore, I mean, we got fantastic naval support from on the final assault when we were going into Port Stanley. Of course, all the, all the you know, the, the Matlows, if you like, <laughs> they all got the same medal. We all had the South, South Atlantic medal. And the only difference was is that we had a, um, you know, a rose, a rose cluster on, on, on our ribbons. But apart from that, you know, I mean, but honestly, I mean, I, if I was given the choice, um, I mean, I, well, on the way down there, we spent seven weeks at sea. Uh, and, you know, you know, as well as I do, I mean, the, 
how claustrophobic it can be on a ship. And we were on a mess deck. There were, you know, 30 or 40 of us or wherever it was. We had, you know, water rationing for an hour a day and all these things. I mean, it was a it was a proper war zone on board that ship, I can promise yeah. you. Um, uh, and then particularly when the when we got into the into the exclusion zone and the the ship would be plunged into darkness and all the sirens were going, you know, air raid warning red and all that sort of stuff. I was absolutely petrified, mainly because there was nothing I could do to affect what outcome you either, if you got, you were literally sitting there waiting to die. Yeah. Yeah. You could hear the the engine, you know, the jets outside and you could hear the explosions going off all around you. And, um, you know, but I mean, you know, given the choice, I mean, I couldn't get ashore quick enough, to be honest with you, even though we were, you know, it, we were going to come into contact with the enemy that way. Did you do um, time on ships as well in, in, in your yeah. time with the Royal Navy? Well, I did, you see, because predominantly because being an air, uh, air engineer, working on seeking helicopters, we were always land-based, uh, like in cold rows. So I did a large percentage of my time on cold rows, and then I was deployed to Ark Royal. But obviously with that deployment for, uh, obviously, RFA Argus, that was my own time, and we did like three weeks down, three weeks back. But it would have yeah. obviously gone longer had we got the green light to go into Sierra Leone at that point. And yeah. I know, like, obviously, like, at that point, things were getting a bit heated up. Um, but then, obviously, I um, found myself on Ark Royal was my last deployment but that time it was in refit so essentially we were like that was the very oh, last yeah. refit and that was in 2001 um so to me it was like it was okay we we're waiting to go to the gulf uh for sea trials um so at that point that was june 2001 when i officially left arc royal on medical leave or sick leave um yeah. and then obviously the world changed a few months later so i suppose yeah. in some ways when i look back had i stayed and yes, obviously, I had a lot of friends who served in Ark Royal um, and went into basic Iraq, even an in invasion of Iraq. Um, I even have one friend who was essentially, he's, he's actually got the main battle flag off Ark Royal um, and he hangs out his window every, you know, every year. And yeah. to me, it's like, it's a, to me, I would go back and redo it. But to be honest, I've always said I would always gone back and redone it with a green lid. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, right. right. Okay. So, uh, yeah, you must have served with Royal then at some point in your. Uh, yeah, yeah. In your well, career. we were, well, what it was was on um, like ship security. It was basically you had like the air, the, um, air base security. We were trained by Royal Marines. Um, okay. yeah. And some were actually obviously like um, serving alongside special forces because we used to have obviously SBS come on board on as well, who did exercises with like search and rescue. Cause this, to be honest, when we're talking now, people, this is all a piece of history because it's all gone now. Even Sea King's gone from the fleet now. Yeah. Arc Royal's gone, our Illustrious is gone, Invincible's gone. They've all basically gone. We're, we're kind of like dinosaurs of, a, of an era that's, you know, that I look back <laughs> now and I think, wow. But the big difference is I'll always be honest, even at seeking half of them were leaking oil and you know but they could yeah. literally have you know 762 rounds go through them and still fly through yeah. any kind of storm oh they were amazing i mean so they, they yeah. were the old workhorses weren't they the sea kings yeah, I mean, yeah. even, on, on the falcons we had you know sea kings uh, seeking helicopters for anybody that's not not aware of what we're talking about they um i mean you know fantastic troop carriers you know workhorses but um in fact, that's where the. Do you know that that's that's how the, the the whole yomp thing started on the Falklands was that the the seeking helicopters were actually on on the way to support us down there. Were on the um, the Atlantic conveyor, which which yeah. obviously was sunk. And then once all that everything went down on on the Atlantic conveyor, um, that's when the whole sort of yomp yomp thing. Because originally the original plan was to you know was to chopper us in. But yeah, um, yeah. you know that all that as you say that's all now now history and whatever. But um, you know I, I think the um, it's a, it's a different world, isn't it, on, on board a ship? Because I remember I was quite thankful that I never got ship's draft <laughs> when, yeah. I, when I was serving. I didn't particularly enjoy my time on board, but I, mean, I had experiences of you know of of um, you know we had the old Harriers as well with the, you know the aircraft carriers on on Hermes for example. That was that was one that that was down there. That was absolutely stunning. You know, watching the, the Harriers come off the ramp and um, you know into the sky and seeing them um, you know coming back in was something special. You know to see. Um, but I also had experience and did a tour on um, the old Rusty B, HMS Bulwark. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that one. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, that was my name, first yeah. experience of going on a, on a, on a, on a troop carrying, you know, but there's always an embarked force of Royal Marines on them. Uh, I mean, I did an exercise and it's quite, I'll say it's mildly amusing when you go on as, as an embarked force. And I remember sort of walking up the gangplank with, you know, massive Bergens and all our weapons and fighting order and all the rest of the stuff that we, you know, that we carry as Royal Marines. And we got a locker the size of 
I don't know, a biscuit tin to stow it all in. Yeah. You know, and and the space, as I alluded to earlier, the cramped spaces on board. Um, I suppose that's where you really, I mean, when you're at that close proximity with people, um, you're going to get to know people pretty well and people's idiosyncrasies and and all that sort of stuff. How how do you, um, you know, as as obviously as a team player, how, how do you get on with kind of, are you good with other people or are you a people person? Definitely. I mean, to be honest, like the lads, obviously, but we, like the time I did, like, um, see, because everybody kind of knew each other from different squadrons. We all went through, like, obviously the engineering schools, went through rally around the same time, went through then, like, say, Salton for the same time. Um, and then basically we then head off in different directions, either to Coldrose or Yeovil. Um, so it was kind of like we all knew each other. Like when I did, um, Obviously, it went on Argus. I had obviously everybody was obviously it was one squadron, so we all kind of knew each other, kind of in the fed. So we all had that. We all basically knew each other. We were all like mates and that. And it was the same as on Ark Royal, and we had people join us from different parts, but we all kind of knew each other. Yeah. So I think really that bonding starts from day one. Once you go through rally together, and you go through, you know, you go through Sultan, and you create that like brotherhood, that bond, yeah. because you essentially eat, sleep, breathe like each other. And to me. That's always been the part that I, that I remember the best. It's, it's the, the lads, you know, yeah. the laughs. It, I think that's what, and I think everybody that serves, it always goes back to the same memory. And it's always those times. It's not the job or it's not, you know, whatever you did. I think it's predominantly the people you surrounded yourself around with. And that's something yeah. I think it's, it's massive. That's our tribe. That's our people. As a veteran myself, and most recently a songwriter, I wanted to write a song about salvation, overcoming adversity, with the premise that no matter how bad things are, it will get better, with the reassurance that everything will be okay in the end. My motivation to write this song was not only based on my own experiences, but also prompted by stories of veterans that had seen active service and the horrors of war, and still carrying the scars of battle in their minds with PTSD. John Lennon famously once said, Everything will be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. This is At the End of the Day by Vasonic. Baby, we'll
when you come out of the Royal Navy then, and you mentioned that you were medically discharged on a mental health grounds. I mean, what, what was, was there something that maybe prompted that to kind of give you kind of, um, you know, problems mentally or, or, and your knee, of course, but what was, what was the mental health issue? Well, the problem was that it all kind of stemmed because I'm done about 18 months and, it, and anybody remembers it was massively changing in the military at that point. It was, you know, there was so much changes and I just knew myself that, like, I remember going into the hangar one day and I speak to a chief had done like 22 years and I said to him, I said, well, what are you up to? And he, uh, you know, you get him in his office, he hands your papers in and everything and he was like, oh, I've got to do this course. And I was like, oh, what's the course for? He says, to become what I'm doing, but in civilian street. And I went, but can't you just transfer your skills? He says, you can't. Technically, in the military, you can't use anything inside it as an air engineer on civilian aircraft. You have to have a civilian aircraft license. Uh. So that's about a £1,000 at that point. Um, but so I was kind of thinking, right, so I want if I was going to spend another, like, say, at this point, it's about eight, like, say 18 months, so you're talking nearly another 20 years in a service that potentially when I come out, I haven't got any skill set to come out with. So I kind of like double think this. And I know life's the two choices. And even I was very, obviously like choices that I looked at was either I wanted to go as a diver, clearance diver. Yeah. And then because the choices were, I either went through to become a clearance diver or I was asked this part, but the part everybody gets and people get this mixed up. They think you can essentially transfer from the Royal Navy into the Royal Marines because it's the same. No, no. you technically have to leave and rejoin and you have to do obviously the, the pre-courses, everything like, you know what I mean? You have to go through that same route as though you've, you've started from day one again. So really mm. I was like, okay, so my choice is either leave and then apply for the Royal Marines and go through that route to get my green lid or I stay in and I go through and I wanted and I thought, right, if I go clearance diver, I can get the the obviously the, the basics. Which at that point I was like, right, I need to do some real training. And I knew that I was getting obviously deployed as well. That would have been coming up soon enough. So I was training, training, training. And I was only doing like 35 kilo Bergen runs just to get myself in there because you've got to think you'd be carrying like cylinders on your back. Yeah. Um, obviously, we're diving. And I remember just going around. I was coming to the end of the run and I was like getting good timings, get me timings better and better, you know. And what happened was I just literally just literally like I just fell. I just hit the deck. I was my knee just went and I and anybody who knows like obviously cold rows where it is, it's literally two minutes it's literally well, a thirty second walk over to the medical base. I managed to hobble over there. I managed to pick myself up, hobble in, and I says, Look, I've I've done this and I went, right, come in, we'll have a look. And the commander surgeon, he just he didn't look at an x ray, he didn't look at any scans or anything. He literally put his hands on my knees, on my knee, it was my right knee, and he felt around and he went, Right, you've got floating bone in there. I can tell you straight away. And I was like, okay, right. So what do I, how do I fix this? He says, right, we're going to have to send you for, we've got the x-rays and we'll, you know, we'll send you for a CAT scan. Well, I went there, but what I did was they gave us the x-ray anyway, but on your knee, it looks like when you look at your knee joint, it looks like a trident shape. Mm. Now the middle bit was all completely snapped off. The bone's gone. Oh, no. It was like a jagged, it was jagged completely gone and i've actually asked the doctor this a good few years back and i explained i drew a picture of it and i went no it shouldn't look like that and i was like thank you because see what happened was i went and got my cat scan never heard no more and this went on month one month two month three and i was still getting pain from it i was still i couldn't run on it i could hardly support myself on the right knee and i was like if this doesn't get fixed i am not going to be able to go for like diver selection or even you know even do anything and my goal was diver do me time in diver because I thought well, if I leave the Royal Marines, I'd have to go. Oh, I leave the Royal Navy and go join the Royal Marines. Yes, I could do it obviously 32 weeks, but like to me, it was like I would love to have done the diver part of it yeah. and then potentially then transfer to go Royal Marine Special Forces, obviously SBS. Mm. That was that would have been my end, like the end point would have been SBS. So that was what I had in my mind, but physically it was like i had this that i had to work on i was like right how do i do this even walking was starting to struggle a bit slightly great so and i waited and now i've got um got me um deployment up to scotland up to rossive where our crew was getting refitted and i walked in the medical center and i was like right i've had an extra i've had x-rays i've had cat scans what's the outcome and they simply turned around and went it was torn ligaments you you're fine and I went, that's not fine. That's a problem. I want to investigate. And they were like, no, you're absolutely fine. And that was the last that I ever got told. And I was like, and it was almost like I'd hit a brick wall. Yeah. I was like, right. 
So if I don't get this fixed now, this is gonna this is gonna end badly. It's career ending. Yeah. Gonna, yeah, it is career ending. Basically, you're not physically you haven't got the strength and the knee, and you know what the yomps are like. You know the yeah. weight that you're carrying. I would not have physically been able to carry that and do like the yomps, exercise, anything like that beforehand. I I could have done it. I had a really good fitness level. I was stamina was good. Everything was good. Even mentally, I was like in this really good place, um, very like determined. Yeah. Nothing was a problem. And like then after, and it and it's like, so someone was starting to grate at us. And I was like, right. And they were like, well, we can give you light ship duties. And I was like, I don't want light ship, eh, ship duties. I want me knee fixed. And, and, mm. and I knew there was something wrong. And I went out and went and they kept saying to us, there's nothing, it's just a torn ligament. It, it will heal itself. And I was like, no. I was told there was bone in there. Uh, you know, can I get uh, like surgery on it? And that, well, no matter what I was saying, they were kind of kept knocking us back. And I was like, right, I'm not having this. And then mentally, it was starting to really grate us down. And I was like, right. And that's when I started finding myself getting very claustrophobic on poor Chip. And it was starting to get really like, I'd wake up and I was like, oh, God, I don't feel well. You know, it's that feeling like the walls are really close and you know what ships are like. Yeah. And that, you know, especially with the, the, the like the bonks, the you know the mess decks. Yeah, you literally got like what about a meter above your head? Yeah, even less than that. Yeah, and it became like it felt like a tomb. It was constantly, you know, it was that constant feeling. And I remember, obviously, I was with somebody at the time, and then it was a kind of realization. It's like I can't go back in there. It's like I, if I keep in there something is i'm just gonna it's just gonna get worse and worse and i found out i was either drinking more i mm. was you know going out more i was like basically I, i'd got a point where i was like starting to burn out of control almost and like um and i remember and it was like basically i got i, I was on like obviously uh, weekend leave and like i says right that's it I've, i can't go back because i know for fact is this is the end of my career anyway you know, if I'm going to spend 22 years in a career, I'd rather it with a green lid. And mm. if I can't have the green lid, it's, it's over. Yeah. And it was a choice I had to make. Was it a case of, do I carry on or do I basically like burn myself out, you know, mentally? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was, it was a point of sanity, really. It was a choice I had to make. Well, I think when you have that situation, when you have that situation, when you, you have these, these dreams and plans of, of going down a certain route and the kind and the kind of, you know, the rug is, you know, ripped from underneath you. Um, you know, it's, it's a it's a lot to deal with, isn't it? Particularly mentally, when when you you channel all your thoughts and um, you know ambition to do those things, um, and it's through no fault of your own. That's that's the where the frustration comes in. I mean, I know myself. I mean, I've, I've suffered from knee pain most of my adult life. Um, it'll still do, but I mean, when I see, when I see you doing these, um, uh, you, well, you're very fit now, aren't you? And you keep yourself very fit. Um, with the, the the gym self harmers club, we'll, we'll we'll give that a mention. So quickly, then is is did that knee kind of not fix itself? But once you got yourself fit, you're you're back in that zone in terms of your physical exercise that you do. Well, to be honest with you, what it is, I obviously I wear knee braces. But the weird oh. thing also, when I exercise, because what happens when the knee is like on its own, it's just sitting there. It becomes very very like it tight very tight and I, and I can feel it and it grates and everything like that. But when you exercise, especially with a knee brace on, it warms up, but it loosens. Especially I found this because I used to do a lot, obviously a lot of kickboxing and I found it was great because I put the knee braces on because someone said to that, because I started actually walking and then started running. And I was like, well, I'm starting to run now, which I never thought I'd be able to do properly. Mm. And it was using knee braces, it was just the, like the, the, the strap on knee braces that you got with the Velcro and everything. So I, I kind of like put it on just to try it because I thought, well, I need something that's going to support the knee, but something that's soft enough that's not going to restrict it. So I started doing that and I found it became better. And like somebody says, like, oh, how's the knee? Because I just obviously conversation wise, and I said, actually, I says, I fixed my own knee, and I went, how do you fix it? I says, put a knee brace on, because of the heat of the knee, and because once it goes loose, it starts being able to, because there'll be bone floating around there anyway. Um, but basically, it was fixing it, and I found that with wearing the knee braces, I found that it was like I was able to exercise, and I was a lot more like weight bearing as well. Yeah, because this the other problem is though when I was obviously when I originally had the damage, I was quite heavy as well. I was like thirteen and a half stone, but it was like obviously a lot of like alcohol and food, you know, dependent there. Mm. And I was like in a way I was overweight, but now I basically it was a case of I built myself up over 
over the last, last, I'd say, five years, I've built myself up on a physical point. And then obviously coming across Rob's page, and I was like, this is crazy. This this guy is, a, you know, absolute beast. Then obviously, like, um, I was like, seeing the exercises he's doing, I'm thinking, this, this is my kind of thing. I like this. You know, and so I thought, I'll give it a go and do this and do that. I got tagged in a couple of posts. I think I'll try this and like exercise or some push-ups or this or that. And it wasn't until last year, really, that I started getting more and more involved in the club and obviously like automatic connection, obviously be, Rob being a former bootnecker um, self and like, um, and obviously then we've done like, done these, all these crazy things. And then it was actually done the 30 miler. Mm-hmm. right across the three peaks and what a what a day it was it was literally 30th started and 30th ended and we did it in about 15 hours and we did the three peaks and the end of it was like kind of the last three miles because actually when you come off the end of the three peaks it's, it's literally like 27 miles so we walked up the road a mile and a half and walked back a mile and a half so we literally did 30 miles fantastic and i'd love to i'd yeah. love to do that yeah it's honestly it's but the problem is that they changed the third route you don't got the traditional way it's literally straight up a hill and honestly it's like vertical at one point your lungs are literally redlining <laughs> and and it, honestly we were all like this is brutal this is the most brutal thing i've ever done and even, even rob yeah. was going backwards and forwards you could see it was like this is and he did it like obviously pre, like pre before we did yeah him and sam and only them guys are fit, but honestly, even that thing, I took it out and, and like, and we're just like all ending. It was one of the best things with like one of the highlights of my life. That, yeah. Just doing that. Yeah. You know, but to be honest, it's just rolled ever since. And then obviously I've obviously had Rob on the podcast and obviously like, um, there's going to be a lot of events at the moment. There's a big one in April. I'm going to do a mile of burpees. Um, hopefully, um, obviously like with all restrictions, might be able to do it like, you know social distance with rob but we're going to yeah. just wait and see on that yeah one. let's hope so um, events like that and um robust tours as well of course you know with those yeah, yeah. organized things i think it's a fantastic thing i mean we spoke before haven't we about the um you know the transferable skills if you like or these the kind of soft skills that you learn in the military and a lot of veterans that that we mutually know um have gone on to do some great things that you know really you know, entrepreneurial and, and in the, the way that they approach them, and um, you know, using those skill sets in in you know, as you say, veteran-owned businesses or initiatives like that. You know, and I think it's great, you know, to give people a taste of of you know what it's like. And it's not necessarily all focused on military, of course, but you know, it, I want to take you back a little bit more to the, to the mental health side of things, Chris, because when, yeah. when we um, when I set the Feeling for Sonic podcast up, it's it's about talking to people like yourself. But one of the things, that, you know, the entrepreneurial lifestyle and health and mental health, um, where sometimes they're not necessarily intrinsically linked. I and mean, you've had experience both, you know, with the problems that you've had with your knee and on a physical pain. But in terms of mental health, um, there's a lot of that as well with, um, with, in, in the veteran community. Uh, and we're both members of uh, Op Spartan of course so it it's, it's important isn't it for for people that have had those experiences to have a kind of support group around where they can talk to other people about issues that they may have faced or still be facing uh, and obviously ptsd is a massive thing within the the um the veteran community and blue light community so being a, how, how important is that then you know for you for you to be a member of something like up spartan to be honest, with you, it's this that community once again, um, and obviously like Stevie, way like Steve Burns, when he obviously he set it up, it was something that I think just took off massively. It just just completely took everybody by surprise. The the intensity, obviously the the memberships, and then obviously how it's built and built and built and built. But really, everybody needs that community. And like I said, it goes back to that tribe. It's about being in that tribe, about being with like-minded people. And I know, obviously, like, at that point, I think it's, like, to me, it's a really good way of, like, knowing that if you've got an issue, you can actually say, look, I'm not feeling great, or this has happened, you know. And there'll be instantly people on there from around the world that will say, right, what do you need? You know, how can I help you out? And I think that's massively important because, see, the biggest problem with people not, speaking out is because they feel that they haven't got any connection or any support there yeah and to me i spent literally i think when i left the military i never really got connected with anybody back in the military for about 16 years of my life wow yeah that's incredible yeah i mean do you think that is that because i I think i was similar i think it's natural that when you when you leave something you 
you don't miss it initially, but like you said earlier, you know, it, it's something that does, you know, if I can talk about my own experience, which I shouldn't be doing on here, but <laughs> it's, um, you know, when you, years later, those, everything that is still with you, you know, all those moments and the people that you met and everything. But yes, I did keep in touch with people, but one thing I never did, or we never did as, 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 as veterans or whatever you want to call us, we never spoke to each other. We never acknowledged between us we're all feeling the same we're all feeling anxious and and you know and um you know having these mental health issues but we never shared them amongst ourselves it was it was almost like a an unspoken we just didn't go there um because i, well, I think alcohol was a big part of oh, it definitely. as well you see it wasn't as much over those 16 years that i never really wanted to connect people it's because i missed it and it was like to me it was like i couldn't really connect to a lot of people outside it wasn't until I yeah. actually started speaking to a friend of mine who's passed away now. He was an 88-year-old D-Day veteran. And obviously just speaking to him in the stories and the, the, yeah. that, that it's that very, no matter the generations, you've got that connection there. Yeah. You know, I might feel it. You know, you've got that connection. And then obviously the best thing I did really was, to be honest, was join Instagram because I didn't start obviously dark side, but it originally was looked like welcome back dark side. And I started getting connected with a lot more of the veteran community. And I found this and me and Glenn both, we kind of, touched on it as saying that once you started connecting with people again it was like wow you know you you start building that bond again yeah and to me it's like especially i think with yourself because i got to a point where i had to slow down on on the number of guests on the podcast with being former royal marines because i was kind of like getting is such a big following and following backwards and forwards and like obviously bootneck community i almost called it the bootneck podcast you know because yeah. it was so many people on there but obviously i've spoken a lot of different variety of people but i think it's something about back if you remember back in 2000 i mean when i was discharged that was it wasn't official it, it never officially existed the uk government didn't exist didn't accept that ptsd was an issue it wasn't until obviously the lads come back from Afghan Iraq that they actually started thinking, ah, there's a problem. And all these people are coming back with these issues. Yeah. Yes. Like I said to Glenn Horton myself, when I spoke to him in London, I says 75% of my issues was civilian based. It was coming out. And then obviously, obviously very, obviously mentally abusive relationship for a long time. Um, and a lot of people may feel it's money and maybe feel well, it's this or that. A lot of times it can be broken in down two sections. It can be either military, it can either be experiences military, but it depends on the experience themselves. But predominantly, a lot of times it's that whole transition from civilian to military. Now, I don't think anybody, for, even for the first probably few years of them leaving the military, no, no matter how long you leave, you'll ever leave it. You never leave no. it. You'll always be part of it. And this is this is a part about identity of like, you never lose that identity. You've earned that lid. You've earned those medals. You've earned that. Everything you've done in the military, you've earned that. That is your identity. Yeah. And you've still got it. People just forget it. And with mental health, it wasn't a thing. We used to drink and drink and drink because it was a done thing. We'd have a few beers, have a yeah. bad day, have a few beers, spin a few dits, you know, have a laugh, have the banter come out. And the problem was, though, it's all about mayo ego, uh, ego because you've got to remember, when you're in the military, your prime role, even as, a, say, for example, a Royal Marine, is to close in and kill the enemy. Mm. You are, that is your primary role. Infantry role, power, you know, Royal Marine, that is your primary role, essentially, to close and then kill the enemy. So it was almost like, as you know yourself, there's no weakness. There's no, you can't have that. And that's, see, that's what a lot of people struggled with. Why are they feeling this way? Why are they like this? Yeah. And that's why people use the time turned alcohol. So essentially, I would say it, it's in the military now. It's getting better. But really, what people have got to understand is when you do a job like that, it's a job like no other. You are yeah. essentially, you know, at that point, like I was on our response team and I was essentially there to remove threats, mm. eliminate armed threats on board ships. And yes, I'd agree that the transition from military life to civilian life is, is, a, is a tough one. Um, and that readjustment is, is, I think it's better now. I mean, the, the thing is, that I've always said about the Marines is that you know, you're trained to such an extent that you're like a coral spring, you know, to react uh, and as you said, you know, close in and kill the enemy and stuff. But when you remove all that and you remove that threat, you've still got that adrenaline pumping through you as yeah. as as a as a, an individual. And when I came, I when I when I left the Marines, uh, I'll, I'll try and keep this brief, basically. But it it I almost lost about at least two years of my life that I just don't remember. 
Um, yeah. uh, and I was, you know, still, a, I was a young lad, really. I mean, I, I joined at 17 and a half, you know, and, um, you know, so around the age of sort of 25, 26, 27, somewhere around there, um, I was, I, I, I woke up every morning, that's assuming that I'd, I'd slept the night before, and I, and I was absolutely convinced I was going to die that day. I mean, all this thought was, I thought I was dying. Uh, and I was having palpitations and, you know, but I didn't understand what was, what was, what was happening to me. And I went to the doctor um, and, you know, obviously I had a really sort of massive anxiety and to the point where I, I just, I was convinced I was going to have a heart attack at any second. In fact, at three o'clock one morning, I walked into Hammersmith hospital and said, um, into a &E and said, can you help me? I'm, I think I'm having a heart attack. <laughs> but I was, I mean, I had it really bad. Yeah. And I went to the, I went to a, um, a doctor, uh, went to, went to my sort of local GP or whatever. And I said, look, I'm getting all these symptoms. And, uh, you know, I think, I think, this, I think there's something seriously wrong with my heart. I, I'm going to keel over. Um, I, and, you know, I'm, I was absolutely convinced I was dying. And this doctor prescribed me, um, I think it was lorazepam, like these sort of, and, and beta blockers to sort of calm my, to try and calm me down. But the problem is, Chris, I ended up just eating these things like Smarties. Because every time I had, a, yeah. had an attack or a panic attack, I just sort of pop a couple of these pills. But to your point, I also wash them down with copious amounts of alcohol, like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. Um, and that was not that's not a good recipe. Um, and it took me yeah. two years to get out of that. And the way I got out of it, the way I dealt with it, um, was that, do you remember in the day, <laughs> I don't know if you did it in your day, but we used to put like poly bags on, bin liners, um, under our kit. Um, and I, and I said to myself, right, I'm going to, I'm going to go out, I'm going to run five miles and if I die, I die. That's it. I'm just, you know, yeah. I'm not taking any more of these tablets. And I literally just took myself off this medication. But the point being that there was no understanding of what PTSD was. It wasn't acknowledged. Um, it wasn't really, un well, obviously it's, it wasn't understood. It was, it was, it was more treated more as a physical thing than a mental thing. If that, if that makes yeah, sense. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah so yeah. I, I totally um, understand, you know, having been there myself, but I mean, what I would go back to what Spartan is, what I would say is that it's an open forum where people can share how they're feeling and they're not going to be judged or anything. Because as you say, in that military environment, but what it, what it also does um, is the way as a coping mechanism, when you're in these situations and you have got, you know, you're being shot at or you're being, you know, strapped from the air or bombed or whatever it might be you know I take myself back to that time when I was you know we're in the exclusion zone uh, in the South Atlantic I mean and the, and the day that we um we we sort of we didn't know whether we were going to face an opposed landing and everything but we, well, we went ashore whatever but the gallows humor um you know because I <laughs> my lasting memory of you know when all the shutters comes that comes down and the ship plunged into darkness you always get some, you know, somebody like, we're doomed, you know, we're all going to die. Yeah. <laughs> because it's the, it's the only sort of coping mechanism that you can get. And even I remember as we were, as we were going down the, the, the rigging, getting into the landing craft when we, when, we, when we went ashore, you know, my mate sort of goes, Steve, uh, yeah, um, you know, if you catch it up, can I have your trainers? And all. The Dark Side podcast then, for anybody that hasn't heard that, what, what's the rationale behind that and, and why did you start it? Well, to be honest with you, like the the page itself was was something that I it was an experiment because um, what it was was I had a personal page on Instagram and then I started connecting with it was actually Garen Jones, um, obviously who's been on the podcast as well, and I threw this idea out. And I started obviously when I was writing, I started putting them out as blogs. And like people were starting to like them, and I, all oh, right, great. So I, what I did was I was speaking to guys, and I said, "Well, what do you think, mate? I'll give it a shot and just put it out there on the main page. What do you think?" And he was like, "Yeah, sounds good to me." So and I created, and it was actually originally Welcome Back to Dark Side, which was my second book because I'd already previously released um, Darkness Be My Friend, but it was just done on Kindle format. Yeah. And then when I done, obviously went back to Dark Side, that was in Kindle and, and paperback. But the thing was, so. Um, what I realized was it started building. It actually started off with one follower and one like. And I've always said, it's not about the followers, not about the likes. It's not about the shares or anything like that. It's the impact that you have on yeah. people, you know? And to me, that was what was important. I always said, if I could help one person, I would, that would be it. I'd quit. And, you know, I wouldn't do no more. And I, I could honestly say, I probably, I would, you know, I'll be honest, I would have quit a long time ago or I finished the page a long time ago. But what it was is it started building momentum and I started getting interacting with people, networking, yeah. chatting to people. And back when the forced conversation, I started getting this following and people and some obviously very big names as yeah. well. 
Um, you know, I started following back and started interacting. And then what it was, was it was like last, what, April, where just obviously when the lockdown had been called and uh, first lockdown. And I thought, you know, I'd love to speak to these people rather than just have that interaction on like just a like a, a keyboard or like, you know what I mean? Backwards, forwards, and posts or anything like that. And I thought, you know, I really want to speak to people. And what it was, was obviously got speaking to Jane McGill. And I said, right, how do you fancy doing a podcast? And she was like, sounds good to me because i'd listened to a lot of podcasts so i kind of was learning on my feet anyway yeah. format etc mm-hmm. and i kind of the very first and 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 what it was it was just unreal it was like i went from one guest and i thought this this is quite good and i thought how to do it do a zoom or do it and i thought well instagram's got a life i'll do it that way and i originally called it the dark side live podcast because it's essentially it mm. is when it goes live it's live and whatever happens it happens you know (laughs) yeah and like to me i wanted that rawness i wanted that realness i wanted that i didn't want it edited i didn't want it like you know cut back i just wanted it as it is and to me it's worked so well i think a lot of people enjoy that it has i mean it's it's, because it's it's a absolutely and and also as you say it's authentic but it's but you are it's prolific as well i mean i know from personal experience it's, it's it's quite an undertaking you know to commit to doing a podcast um, but doing it live, I think it's a, it's a different proposition altogether. So I doff my cap to you, mate, on that on that one. Um, so you mentioned those books there without us referencing uh, them, as you as a, as a published author. Um, so that's the, the, the Dark Side Collection then. And, and tell us a little bit more about Ronin and, um, you know, your, your writing uh, skills and, and career. Yeah, so really, like I said, it was actually Darkness Being My Friend was the very first book. And it was an achievement for me because I always wanted to write a book and I never knew what I wanted to write a book on. It was like... Well, how do I start this? And what it was was just little ideas just coming through. And I, and it took me a while to start reading and writing again. I'd kind of lost this ability to do it. And I think it was real, obviously everything that was going through and had very lot loss of like, you know, concentration was horrible. It was like, it was at its worst. I, and I literally had to start to read again and then write again. And then I was like getting this ability back. And like what it was was... I started putting little pieces together and I started thinking this was, this would work or this would work. And I said, you thought, what could I write a book on? So I kind of got my own life. And, and then I started creating this and I started putting it all together. And I started realizing that I, I enjoyed mm-hmm. doing it. And I was like, this is working. This is really working. And what it was, it was, wasn't for anybody else. It was for me. And I thought, if I can do this, can I write this? Can I publish this? But how could I publish it? And then obviously trying to do a bit of research and that and the best I could and then realise, oh, we can publish on Kindle. And I was like, great. So I tried this and it took us forever to get to that point. And I finally did it. And it was just like, wow, you know. And then what it was was a lot of time just working on the art of like writing essentially and you know and that was actually one of my very first podcasts was called The Art of Writing because people were asking, so oh, how do you write book? And I started Things, lessons that I went through, lessons that I learned, I kind of put down on format of like book format and thought, well, that worth me, it might help somebody else. So I started putting this all down on words and people started picking up because I started in doing the interaction with the page as well. And as that was building it, and then it wasn't until really I'd done, obviously, the, um, the Art of Chasing Demons and Seven Sins, which is all about addictions and sins. And like, are they really as bad as what we think they are, you know? And it was a lot of traction from this and that and all my work and people were really starting to get in, interact with it and yeah. enjoy it. But it is, is anyone's got um, Discord, I am on there. It's Dark Side Community. You can actually get access to that through and you actually get, I'll, I'll give you the books. To me, it was more about something that I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. And I've wrote like seven books now and Ronan was actually probably my most enjoyable part. I loved writing mm. that because it was literally an hour a day for 30 days and I wrote that's amazing and it was like yeah. literally now it, it, and, and do you know I was in that zone I was in that zone of writing it was about and it's about Japan it's about this guy Ronan and we all know obviously Ronan's wandering I'm a massive fan of Japan martial arts you know John Wick all this stuff but I didn't want to come across as this whole John Wick style I wanted it as a John Wick element but not completely I wanted this guy that had a like you know, had that heart, had that empathy, had that, but this guy could do some serious damage when he was giving blades, mm. you know? And, and, and I wanted that part, but I wanted it to come across as not just, you know, biceps and bullets. It's like Dean Stott would say, which I agree because a lot of that is biceps and bullets when you look at a lot of action based genre, but I wanted it. So people, when they got on that journey and learned something, I had to do a lot of research on Japan, martial arts. Cause obviously I, I have studied ninjutsu, as well as a lot of different style martial arts as well. Uh, everything from Aikido, karate, um, 
you know, motor-style kickboxing I'm qualified in or graded in. And well. like, um, <laughs> you know, and it's that, that whole that whole part of life, essentially, that's in that whole new ballpark, you know. But, like, to me, that subject is fascinating. I'm fascinated with Japan's samurai, yeah. you know, the whole... And because I always linked that, I would say that if you look at military special forces now, they are the modern-day ronins, they're the modern-day samurai, modern-day ninjas. They are essentially that. They've just transitioned to what they are, you know. But talking about Ronan, that is my probably my favorite. Oh, that's excellent. All the things you know, all the things I absolutely yeah. love about it. What about your own personal reading then? What what sort of books do you like to read? I mean, because I, I I've just um, recently uh, discovered I I do like reading military books actually. Um, n- not just not not necessarily just factual history ones, but you know. Um, fictional uh, stories as well. I mean, obviously, the, the, I've read this, you know, Andy McNabb and Bravo 2-0 and all that. That's where it all kind of started, wasn't it? But do you, do you enjoy those books as well? To be honest with you, I, it depends on the writer because I find they're very similar of, like, of how a book's wrote. If you look at the modern-day, uh, like, the authors, essentially military, you'll see that resemblance in the way that they write. There's very few that there's some that do stand out as really well. But I kind of mine go from say Odysseus, you know, obviously Homer, right through to like Spartan to Greek to you know Stoic to once again classics. I've probably read nearly every classic wow. there's been. Um, right down to War and Peace. I've I've literally they love the whole Tolkien, you know, aspect of it. You know, so every kind of genre I've picked on, and I've taken pieces out of it because I had this very much undertone. And it was a, and I love the uh, the author Stephen Pressfield. And actually, I got a personalised book sent from obviously the America from Stephen, and he's obviously he signed really? it for us. And he sent it to us as a gift. If yeah, he's um, it was his new one, A Man of Arms, and it's about that undertone. I love that part of Warrior, you know, the Warrior mm. ethos. And I think we're, we've all kind of got that because i always say oh and the biggest question and i've asked this myself are you born a warrior are you born to fight because i'd say i think some people are Mm. generally born a Mm. warrior you know you've got that in your dna and i love that whole undertone so kind of my whole reading is so vast you know that i've covered probably every aspect right around to like even Norse mythology and you know that whole area I've read every religious book that you could probably get hands on oh very well read kind of, <laughs> yeah well to be honest I think if you're going to be an author you've got to have some kind of reading the capability you know to actually say I'm not just going to stuck stick on this one genre yeah. I'm going to cover them all because you learn a piece from everything yeah. what about music do you, how, how do you listen to music Ooh. I mean what I've seen of you uh, usually with your headphones on, punching something. Um, so is it, uh, you know, if you've got gloves on or whatever, or you're doing a workout of some kind, do you, do you like, uh, you know, energetic, high, high energy music? It's got to be high energy, but it's, it can be anything. It can be metal to like, da, 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 especially trance as well, trance, metal, thrash, you know, everything. Because I listen to all genres, mm. really. Um, I'll listen to, uh, obviously, I love them, like metal, like Metallica, all the old classic Metallica, yeah. I mean, all, you know, ACDC, all that style, right through to even now. I like a lot of the, like, even some of the modern stuff, the way I would class as modern is Limp Biscuits and areas such as that. But also, I've, uh, to be honest, it's quite strange. I can go through my playlist and I can go from one day classical music right through to, because to me, I look at classical music as no different from electric music. It's just the fact that it's electric. Yeah, you know it sounds the same to me, and you know, and I break that down, and I cover everything from, like I said, from d- trance, you know, house mm. music to you know every style, and I think I like to. It's that energy level that I've got to find myself at. I mean, the beauty of music, of course, is that it can. I mean, it depends on what mood you're in. Is what you're going to listen to, isn't it? I suppose you know, because you yeah, know, yeah. there are certain sort of things. I mean, one of the things that I absolutely love, I think it's Spotify now that put this uh, volume controller limiter on it or whatever you keep getting these notifications to turn it down well i do because I, I mean I, i'm quite worried about my hearing and um, my wife my wife is absolutely convinced i'm sort of you know partially deaf but um that's probably selective hearing or but i would i would say that um i don't want to end up with something like you know with tinnitus or anything else like that but i just love loud music and, and when i'm driving particularly 
I like, you know, if you're on a motorway run of, of any distance, um, you know, like turning the music right up and, and, and really getting into it. But, you know, if you're in, if you're in a sort of sad mood or reflective mood, then obviously you might listen to something else. And, but it's a great reflector of, of, of you know, how we're feeling as, as when we listen to music, isn't it? It certainly is because with the human emotion, like you said, yeah. you, you go through these different phases. Yeah. You'll go through like one day you might be quite more reflective, so you might listen to more, depending on more like meditation, more classical, more slower type of music, mm. and then you build up that like energy basis of like depending on what you're looking for, and your mood does reflect it. Like with writing, people always ask us, "How do you write?" I say, "I don't know." To be honest, that's the honest answer. I just put music on. I start writing. I so do you? It. I feel this is what do you, I feel do, you, like. do you um, lock yourself away when you do that, or you know, to, away from distractions and, and and stuff? So, I mean, have you ever experienced things like, like writers? As a songwriter myself, I can sometimes sit there and just nothing comes out. So, have you experienced like writer's block? I don't think it exists. Oh, to be uh, honest, because if you because if you're a writer, I, I agree with this. If you're a writer, you can write. So if something doesn't work, try something else. You know, take that step back because if you're a writer and you've got the ability to write, you can kind of adapt yourself to many different circumstances. Mm. So me, I can write 15 blocks a week, yeah. say, but I might start one and think, mm, I don't know whether to go down that, that path or not. I'll come out of it and I'll, and something else yeah. will come to me. So I'll start on that one. So you might have 15 different ideas, but you can revisit them at yeah. any time. So I don't think as a writer, you essentially, I think it's kind of a myth because in a way people say that because you kind of think, well, if you're a writer, you can become quite adaptable to situations and learn. And if you, if you get a bit stuck on one idea and think, oh, I don't know which way to yeah. take this, try something yeah. else. You know, take a step back, you know, try a different and think actually that I was working on that as well. So sometimes when you look at it, we create ourselves these own values. Yeah, I think that, that's, that, is, that is true. Um, I mean, if I think about my own experience as, as a songwriter, uh, I can sometimes sit there and, you know, you, 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 as you just said, you know, have a do, have a do. Sometimes I find just basically getting up and walking around and go and make a cup of tea and then coming back to it works wonders because if the more yeah. you, the more you, more laboured it is, the harder it gets, you know. So if you try and force it, um, that's I, I'd agree with you that that's, that's not a good idea because nothing will then come out, you know, so you've, you've got to, you know, get creative, like any creative pastime, um, creativity can lend itself in many, in many ways. In, and, and you can go off in many tangent and, you know, you can basically say <laughs> you know, exactly what, what you want. Um, I mean, again, as a songwriter, sometimes you can try and overthink things. And, yeah, I think yeah. so because I think I think Oasis did that beautifully. I think Noel Gallagher proved it. You don't have to be a writer, almost. It was just what if you look at the lyrics of Oasis? Does it? I know. Sense? Well, you know, slowly walking down the hall faster than a cannibal. You know, what's all that about? But but like yeah. Noel himself will say, you know, it's incredible. But you know, it's it's the melody, I suppose, in songs that that grabs people. But when you when he's now you know fifty two, whatever he is, um, and he's and he's doing a gig and he's in the front row, he's got all these fourteen, fifteen year old kids singing those songs back at him. Uh, that you know they 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 do have this legacy and um, you know arguably what makes a great song or everything. But I'm really interested in the music and other people's musical tastes um, and stuff. So have you got a where, where's who's your band then, Chris? Metallica was it? That's a tough question. That's a tough question. I still say the best like concert I've ever been to was Metallica. Metallica. Yeah. Just to stand there, and to be honest, it was the first time that I've been in a crowd of people because this was obviously just this was like 2019, and like standing in Etihad Stadium with thousands of people yeah. around you, and it was raining. It was purely raining down. You're in the middle of one, and explosions are going off, and everything's <laughs> happening. And I was in this moment as then. And it was like, these are my people. This is my moment. This is where I need to be. This is where, this is the place I should be. And I don't think I've experienced that as much for many a year. Yeah. That was, Metallic. I've always been that. That's my, probably my band. Yes, Guns N' Roses, I've seen obviously Slash Live. Yeah. And like, um, and to be honest, I've always loved the, the 80s rock and like obviously going into like that yeah. era. The Black Album, Usual Illusion, probably the greatest, you know, from Appetite Destruction to that period at 88 to 91 92 and i think that period of music was so crucial for what was created and it's a legacy because mm -hmm. um, even the songs now still stand the test of time if you look at civil war are we not still saying those questions yeah. now yeah all right chris well i think we're probably uh coming to the end of the time that we've got available on the podcast so all that remains for me to say is thank you very much for joining me as my guest on the feeling of a sonic podcast 
um you know we've covered a, cut a, a lot of stuff there and um i think what's come out of it for me is <laughs> you're a very busy man uh, and you which which i think is fantastic you know you keep yourself busy with your, with your writing and um and everything else that you do with um you know with with as and as a great encourager i would say uh, you know my impression of you and um so thank you um and I hopefully i'll uh, i'll get to speak to you again some point very soon Definitely, definitely. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for obviously inviting us on. No problem at all. My thanks again to Chris for joining me as my guest. My name is Stephen Connor, and you have been listening to the Feeling the Sonic podcast. Joining me next week is singer, songwriter, band member, session musician, and all-round muso, Sam Christmas. Until then, keep calm, stay safe, and God bless. <laughs>